Good evening. I'm glad you decided to join us online tonight. Uh, if you're watching, or if you're watching a recording of this later on, glad, thank you for looking back and watching this recording as well. Obviously, we would rather be gathered here in person, uh, but what a blessing it is if we have to go through a pandemic to be going through it in a time when technology affords us so many options, uh, so many alternatives. Uh, so we missed last week, but we are back at it again tonight with our, our series titled Everyday Disciple Making. And the big idea of this series is that Jesus intends for his followers to be disciples who make disciples every single day. Back when COVID turned our world upside down and threw off our weekly rhythms of going to church, and now it's thrown off our weekly rhythms of going to church again, now if we're honest, that makes us feel a little bit lost. We're left asking, how do we live as Christians if we can't go to church? Because for most of us, our Christian walks have revolved around these weekly gatherings of Sunday morning, Sunday school and worship service and Wednesday night kids programs and Bible study. And when those things are taken away, we struggle to know what it looks like to live as Christians. We know how to go to church every week, but do we really know how to be disciples who make disciples every day. So our goal in this series is to learn how to be disciples, to make disciples every day, no matter what gets thrown at us, whether it's a pandemic or something much worse, like the persecution that so many of our brothers and sisters face all around the world. Well, John chapter 15 is Jesus' instruction manual for how to be a disciple who makes disciples. And in this chapter, he gives us the top three priorities of the Christian life, the top three things that we have to be devoted to if we want to be disciples who make disciples. Now, last time together, we looked at that first priority in the first 11 verses of chapter 15, and we saw that that first priority is to abide in Jesus. Jesus said that apart from him, we can do nothing. And so above all else, we have to stay vitally connected to him. And we do that through his word and in the Bible and through prayer. And this week, we are looking at verses 12 through 17, and we will be talking about priority two of the Christian life. So if you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 15, verse 12. Now, this text, it is part of the farewell discourse that runs from chapter 14 through 17. These are Jesus' final, these chapters are Jesus' final teaching sessions with his disciples before he was betrayed, arrested, and crucified. He is saying farewell. And he knows now that, that after he rises from the dead, that he would ascend back to heaven, leaving the world physically. And so what he's doing here in this farewell discourse is he's preparing his disciples for what life is going to be like whenever he is no longer physically in the world. In chapter 14, he promises to send them his Holy Spirit. And so he says from now on, instead of being physically beside them, he would be spiritually inside them through the Holy Spirit. And he tells them that it's actually much better this way because he would be able to guide and empower our lives in an even bigger, better way than if he were physically in the world with us. But this new reality, now, it, it, though it's better, it does mean some big differences in terms of what it would look like for them to be his followers. On a personal level, following him is no longer about literally 
following him, but about abiding in him spiritually. And that's what we saw in verses 1 through 12. And now, uh, in, in verses 12 through 17, Jesus is setting his sights on, on the corporate level of what things are now going to look like among his followers as they are be, going to be the church. And he tells us that in verses, verse 12 of John chapter 15. So look there with me. Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now we'll stop there at that one verse. Instead of reading the whole passage tonight, we're going to, to work through it bit by bit. Read a little bit, talk a little bit, and work through it that way. So based on this command, Jesus is saying that priority number two of the Christian, of the disciples' life, is to love one another. So in this new reality of the Holy Spirit inside of us, when, when we step into life together, we're together as followers of Jesus, above all else, our lives together have to be characterized by love for one another. Now, last time we used this illustration of this dinnerware to show how these three priorities work together. In this first level, this cup is rep represents priority one. This is where you abide. And it's as if Jesus is a pitcher, and as you're abiding, it's like you're keeping your cup under the pitcher, and you're staying connected to Jesus' love. You're staying in communion with Jesus, and you're full of joy. And, and then, as you are filled with his love and his joy, that overflows into this second level, this saucer, where we uh, engage in priority two of loving one another. And so if you want to get to priority two, if you want to love one another and love other Christians, first, we have to personally be filled with the love of Jesus. That's why the priority, priority one, abide in Jesus, priority two, love one another. Now, on chapter 15 isn't the first time that Jesus gave this commandment to love one another in the farewell discourse. He had, he had already said it in chapter 13 where he says this, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this love that Jesus is commanding us to share He's saying that it's so unique, it is so special, so different, that it will be the one thing that sets us apart from every other group of people in the world. I mean, all, all kinds of groups, Christians and non-Christians alike, love, love one another. Sports teams, families, co-workers, they, they genuinely care for one another, even if they're not Christians. But Jesus is saying that the love that Christians share is fundamentally different, so different that it's going to be how people know that we are his disciples. And the difference is there in chapter, in chapter 13, verse 34, and then in verse 12 of chapter 15, the difference he says is that this love that you have is going to be as I have loved you. And so the love among Christians is unique because it distinctly reflects the way that Jesus has loved us as his followers. I mean, when, I, when I read that, when I hear that, I'm thinking, what, what a tall task. Because the way Jesus loved us, it infinitely surpasses 
any kind of love that I could ever be able to give or any kind of love that I ever could receive from anybody else. So, so what in the world is Jesus getting at when he says, love one another as I have loved you? And that's exactly what Jesus tells us in the next verse. So look at verse 13. Jesus says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So, so in that verse, Jesus is describing both the way he loves us and therefore the way that he wants us to love one another. And he, he describes it in two ways. He says it involves first, it, it involves laying down your life. And, and second, he describes the target of that love. He says we do it for people who are described as friends. So in other words, we are called to love one another by laying down our lives for fellow friends of Jesus. And so, so first, let's just talk about what it means to lay down our lives, because that sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? And rightly so. I mean, think about the context of this. Shortly after Jesus gave this command, he would go and literally lay down his life in the fullest sense of the phrase by dying on the cross. And so here is Jesus saying that we need to die for one another? I mean, at the very least, for just reading this for what it means, I think he, he is at least saying that the love we share as Christians should be so strong, so real, so deep, that, that we would indeed be willing to die for one another. The reality is, however, most of us, we won't ever find ourselves in that situation. And, and that's a good thing. Because if we're honest, the people that we are willing to actually die for in this world probably makes up a very short list. If we're being honest, ask yourself, how many people that I go to church with would I be willing to die for? And it has to make us wonder, if we're honest about that in our hearts, does the love shared by most Christians, does it really measure up to the sort of love that Jesus was getting at here in John 15? And so, now, now, though if we're not put into that situation of literally having to die for one another, then what does it mean? If we, if, we, if we do actually love each other with that kind of love, what does it mean if we're not in that kind of situation to, to lay down our lives in the normal, everyday situations of life together? And so, so here's just a definition of laying down your life, and we'll work through it. To lay down your life is to forfeit your preferences or perhaps even your personal welfare for someone else. Now, forfeit is a sports term. It is whenever a, a team gives up and accepts losing the game without even uh, playing the game or even putting up a fight. Often if not enough players show up, a team will have to forfeit. But the idea is that when we forfeit something, we are giving it up without a fight. And so laying down our lives is giving up our own personal interests for the sake of someone else and giving them up without a fight. Now, oftentimes we don't get our way. <laughs> I mean, I remember my parents often would tell me, life's not fair, you don't always get your way. Uh, but oftentimes when we don't get our way, it's not because we didn't try. And so no, it doesn't count as laying down your life if something has to be pried out of your hands. Uh, I wrestled over this definition of laying down your life, of, of what words to put in there. I landed on preferences and personal welfare. 
I'm sure there are other words that would have fit. But the idea there is that there's, there's a whole spectrum of things that we can lay down our lives for. There's a whole spectrum of things that we can forfeit for someone else's good from our preferences on one end, like, like which restaurant to go to or what style of music you like, all the way to the other end of the spectrum to our personal welfare, where, where we actually sacrifice maybe our health or our safety for someone else's good. And so forfeiting preferences sometimes uh, creates tension in the self-household, but, but not in the way you might think. Uh, when it comes time to pick the restaurant, uh, both Carmen and I, we really would prefer, our preference would be for the other person to choose. We, we would rather them get their preference of food than for us to get it ourselves. And so we're pretty easygoing, easy, easy to please people, but we can go round and round of you choose, no you choose, no you choose. And, and now it's one thing to forfeit a preference. It's a whole other thing though to forfeit personal welfare. And to be clear though, before we dive into this, I am not saying, and Jesus is not saying here, that you are commanded to lay down your life by letting someone abuse you or intentionally cause you harm. That is not the case. That's not what he's commanding you here. And however, laying down our lives for fellow friends of Jesus can indeed mean that our personal welfare will, will take a hit. Just for example, there's so many examples of ways this could happen, but one could be maybe, maybe losing sleep where you, you stay up with a brother or sister in Christ who lost a spouse and you're, you're comforting them maybe, you know, or on the phone or whatever. Or it could be uh, doing without material things you want because you gave your money to a fellow friend of Jesus, or any other number of ways where we exchange our welfare for the welfare of someone else, which is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. When he laid down our li his life for us, he took our sins onto his body. He, he sacrificed his own personal welfare freely and willingly for our welfare so that we would not have to suffer the penalty of our sins. And so he made that exchange. Now in, in Ephesians 5, Paul commands husbands to lay down their lives for their wives. And the logic he used there, uses there is he says that the husband and the wife are, are one flesh. Based upon Genesis, uh, they become one flesh. And he reasons how foolish it would be for a man to hate his own body. And so in, in the same way, a man should care for his wife as if she were his very own body because they are one flesh. Now, obviously, the relationship among Christians is not, is not exactly the same nature as the relationship between a husband and a wife. But in a real way, that same analogy applies to us as the church because we are part of the same body. The Bible refers to the church as the body of Christ. And so if, if you look at it that way, how could we not lay down our lives for one another? If one person is hurting, we should feel pain. We should want to lay down our lives for their good and their welfare. And if, you're, if, you're, if one hand gets sliced open, your other hand is not like, oh, well, I'm going to keep on completing this Sudoku. No, that other hand reacts immediately. 
And it takes hold of the other hand and cares for it and wraps the bandage around it. And that's how we should relate for, to one another in the body of Christ. But we don't. We don't always lay down our lives. And honestly, I think it's because of the simple fact that we lose sight of the reality that we are all part of one body. We, we lose sight of the fact that we are fellow friends of Jesus. And so in order to live up to this command in John 15, we have to learn to, to see each other first and foremost as, as fellow friends of Jesus. And think about it, we treat people differently based on their titles, don't we? Uh, if, you've never, if you've ever seen the show Undercover Boss, uh, you know this to be true. The gist of the show is the CEO of a huge company will go undercover and he will go work at a, a low bottom level job in his own company. And his, his new supervisors have no clue that they are and that, that the boss is working for them. And you can imagine their surprise and how their demeanor changes when they you know, find out that this new guy is actually the CEO of the company. Before they were saying, you know, hey, you, and go do this and that. Now they're saying, oh, yes, sir, yes, sir. In the same way, we will treat people differently if, if, if we keep in mind that above every other title they bear, whether that title is a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a coworker, a boss, employee, etc., if they are followers of Jesus, then above all other titles, their number one title is friend of Jesus. On the playground when you were a kid, and you think about this, you did not mess with the kid who had the big, strong friends. In the same way, you don't mess with the people who have Jesus as their friend. And so we've got to keep, keep, keep in mind that the people that are all followers of Jesus, they are fellow friends of Jesus. And so in this text, Jesus reminds us of several things that are true of his friends. And so look down at the end, down to verse 17. Jesus tells us his purpose for, for, teach, for telling us these things. He says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And so these five things that we're going to look at in the text that are true of Jesus' friends, he tells us those things so that we will lay down our lives for one another. Now, first of all, so first of all, friends of Jesus have a shared obedience. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So now Jesus here, he is clearly talking about a different type of friendship than what we are used to. Uh, most friendships we have with other people are not based upon whether or not we obey them. If your best friend tries to make you obey them, you'll probably be finding a new friend. But this friendship, our relationship with Jesus is rooted in obedience because he is our Lord. He's not just a buddy-buddy friend. He is our Lord. But his lordship is not domineering or oppressive but it's close and it's caring. It, it is a friendship. So he is our Lord, but he's also our friend. So how does this shared obedience, this fact that we're all called to obey Jesus, how does it help us love one another by laying down our lives? 
Well, uh, because that's what Jesus tells us. I'm telling you these things so that you love one another. And what Jesus is doing here is he's reminding us that we are all under the same authority. And to be a disciple, what we saw in the first week of this series, that is that to be a disciple is to obey the commands of Jesus. That is what it means to be a disciple. Based on Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, obeying Jesus' commands is what makes you a disciple. And so a huge barrier to loving one another in the church arises when we fail to act like we're under the same authority and instead start acting like we are the authority. Relationships in the church break down when individuals start thinking and acting as if they hold the authority in the church. Now, this can certainly be true of official leaders like us pastors or or deacons or other formal leaders, but it can also be true of anybody in the church. I mean, mean, think about this this way, where, where people try to get their way by threatening to withhold ties or stop serving or threatening to leave the church. What are they doing there? Well, they're trying to make the leaders of the church obey them. And sometimes those actions are in response to when a formal leader makes a decision in such a way that they expect all the people to obey them. And it just happens where you you can get those situations where people go back and forth and back and forth, just jockeying for authority because we've forgotten and we're not acting as if Jesus is really the one who is in charge of the church. Jesus, above all else, we are compelled to obey Jesus. So as lay people or, or leaders, we are all under the same authority of, of Jesus. And when that's the heart of all the people, both lay and leaders alike, uh, you will have a church that is characterized by unity and harmony because we are all focused on our one task, our shared obedience to Jesus. And we're not going to be getting sidetracked by our sinful desires to make people obey us. Now, second, the second thing Jesus points out is that friends of Jesus have a shared knowledge. So look at verse 15. Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So being a friend of Jesus means that he has given you access to a special kind of knowledge that only his followers are privy to. What kind of knowledge is that? What is this knowledge? Well, it's knowledge of what God the Father is doing in the world, specifically knowledge of how God the Father is providentially working out his plan to redeem and save the world. In other words, Jesus has made known to us the gospel, God's plan for saving the world. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter one. He says, in him, so in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to his purpose, which he lavished upon us and us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Paul's holding that up saying, look at the knowledge that we have all as friends of Jesus been given access to. So now how does this shared knowledge of the gospel, how does that help us love one another? Well, to begin with, it changes us into new people. Relational strife was the first noticeable effect of the fall. You think about this, after Adam and Eve sinned, 
the first thing they did was hide from God. They knew their relationship with God had been messed up. And then the second thing they did was they started blaming each other. So in God's plan for undoing the effects of the fall comes into effect through the gospel. It reverses that relational strife. Now, apart from Jesus, our natural heart bent is to just look out for ourselves. We don't want to lay down our lives for other people. In fact, our natural inclination is to, is to throw Eve under the bus if it saves our skin. And so it takes a supernatural work of God to change our hearts and make us willing to lay down our lives. And that's exactly what God does in the gospel. Well, second, the knowledge of the gospel makes us be joyful servants of Jesus. Well, Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. But that doesn't mean, though, that we have stopped being his servants altogether. No, because think about the way Paul opens almost all of his letters where he says, Paul the apostle, a servant of Christ Jesus. So in a real sense, we are still, even though we've been called friends, we are still servants or slaves of Jesus. The word there can mean both things because the purpose of our lives is to serve Jesus as our master and our Lord. But based upon what Jesus says here, we are not merely servants. We are his friends. And what makes us his friends is the fact that he has let us in on this special knowledge. You know, as a kid, I was not in the in crowd. And what drove me crazy more than anything was to see the in crowd you know, in a circle, talking, laughing, have a good time. It drove me crazy because I could not know what they were up to. Jesus is saying you never have to feel that with him. He has made known his father's plans to you. And you find that knowledge. Where do we find that knowledge? We find it in the word of God and in the person of Jesus. Hebrews 1 says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So the prophets writing the Old Testament and the different things they said. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, and so this knowledge makes us friends of Jesus and it gives us the power to serve him with joy. So imagine that you're here a kid and one of your parents says, go carry buckets of sand back and forth. Uh, keep bringing me buckets of sand and it's blistering hot outside and you don't know what's going on. That would be miserable until or unless you know your parent lets you in on the secret that all this labor is to build the most fabulous sandcastle that you've ever seen. And, and they've welcomed you into this task as a partner. And that knowledge, it would put a skip in your step. Whereas before you've just been like, it's hot and this is not fun. No, you're, you're, you're joyful about this new, about this task because of this knowledge that you've been given you, given. In the same way, even when you can't understand all the details of your life, you can live with joy because you are confident in the promise that through the gospel, your good father is working all things together for good, both for you as an individual and for all of creation. And when you're filled with joy, um, you're, you're a lot more loving to those around you. Amen. Which brings up the third way this shared knowledge of the gospel helps us love one another. It helps us love one another by anchoring our hearts in them and, and our minds during times of trial. And during my time in ministry, I've learned that most of the time when a Christian is being hateful or bitter, 
It is usually because he or she is dealing with some serious pain in the background of their heart. Sometimes people are just hateful and bitter, but most of the time, most of the time, it's because of some deep pain. And I know it's been true in my life. Um, when um, Carmen and I were uh, struggling with, with infertility, um, during those, those long years of heartache and frustration, there were probably more times than I would have liked to admit where, where someone crossed me and they got more bitterness and frustration from me than they probably deserved. My pain in the background caused me to act less than loving. And so the only, the only way to escape that trap of bitterness and frustration, though, is to keep our eyes glued on this shared knowledge of what the Father is doing in the world. The, the promise from Jesus this promise about shared knowledge, though, it does not mean he gives us access to all the details. Most of the time, we don't get the privilege of understanding why certain trials come our way in detail, but it does mean that God has given us access to the details of God's big picture plan. And he has promised that one way or another, one way or another, every detail, every painful experience that comes your way has passed through the hands of a loving father and he will work it out for good. And when, when you have that kind of assurance, it allows you to be patient and loving with those around you, even in the middle of a painful experience. Now look at verse 16 of John 15. John, Jesus says, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So, so the third thing, the third thing that is shared among Jesus' friends is friends of Jesus have a shared calling. And so with this statement, what Jesus is doing is he is correcting any false ideas that we deserve the credit for being his followers. Now, obviously here he is talking directly to his disciples. And so in a real practical sense, he is the one that called them from the fishing boat or from the tax booth. But this truth applies to us as well. As elsewhere in John, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And so we, we have to be careful when we, with what we mean when, by when we say things like, I decided to follow Jesus, or I chose to follow Jesus. Now, in a sense, yes, we are responsible for responding to the gospel, and we don't have time today to unravel the mystery of how God chooses people and how he also gives us a free will to make a decision. But just sticking to our text for today, what Jesus is saying is he's, he's wanting to make a clear point. He's wanting to make the point clear that you did not choose Jesus, but he chose you. So ultimately speaking, Jesus is the one responsible for your salvation. So how does that, how does that reminder help us love one another? Well, it helps us love one another by knocking down our pride. Uh, the Corinthians, the Corinthian Christians they had a big pride problem that was causing all kinds of turmoil and issues in the church. They were clearly not laying down their lives for one another. So listen to what Paul tells the Corinthians. He says this, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, 
even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So did you catch what Paul is saying there? He's saying, you didn't choose God, God chose you, and he didn't choose you because of your strengths and your talents and your abilities. He chose you for your weaknesses. That's why Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And why he says that we have to become like little children to believe in him. He's not interested in our strengths and our abilities. What he's interested in is is how aware we are of the fact that we bring nothing of the, to the table and how aware we are of just how desperate we are for him to work in our lives to completely save us and transform us. One of the, the children's Bibles we have for our little boys, I love the way it puts this in one of the gospel stories. It says that to follow Jesus, to be useful in his kingdom, you don't have to have a lot of things or know a lot of things or be a lot of things. You just have to know that you'd need Jesus a lot. That's basically what it says, and that's so true. He didn't choose us because of what we brought to the table. He, he chose us because in our weakness, we could display his strength and his power and his glory. And so like the Corinthians, if we are to love one another rightly, we need to consider our calling, which is what Jesus wants us to do here in John 15, because we will not lay down our lives for one another if we think that we are better than one another. And so today we have to repent of attitudes and actions in our lives where we think of ourselves as more valuable, uh, as a more valuable member of the team than any, than any fellow brother or sister in Christ. Because if that's our heart, we will not lay down our lives. So the application for you is think about the person in your life group, in your church, or any other Christian that you share life with who you've looked down your nose at and maybe thought, well, they don't have anything to bring to the table. They're not smart. They're not intelligent. They can't sing. Whatever, whatever you've thought in your heart and your mind, we've got to repent of those attitudes because nobody is a more valuable member of the team. We're all on the same playing field. We all have a shared calling. You did not choose Jesus, but Jesus chose you. You know, a, a husband who in his heart thinks that he is more valuable than his wife or that his work is more important, that man will not lay down his wife, lay down his life for his bride. In the same way, a parent who sees his kids as a hindrance to his important work will not lay down his life for his kids. And so, so even in your home, if you share a home with other Christians, Christian family, remember your shared calling and let it give you a humble heart. Fourth, The fourth thing Jesus points us to is that friends of Jesus have a shared mission. Look again at verse 16. Jesus says this, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how bearing fruit involves two things. It involves formation and replication. So formation, when we bear fruit, we we become formed into the image of Christ. We become more like Christ. Jesus. In replication, we multiply our lives by making more disciples. That's how we bear fruit. And so here Jesus is saying, is the reason I chose you, the reason I called you to be my follower is so that you would bear fruit. That's the purpose of your life. And in in this passage, when Jesus says you, it's a plural you. So it is as if he is saying, I chose you all. 
and I appointed you all that you should all go bear fruit. Now, proper English doesn't have a different word. Singular you is the same as plural you. That's why I'm proud to be a Southerner because we fixed that problem with the word y'all. And so basically in the original language, in the original Greek, there is a word for y'all and that's how it would read. And so, so how does this shared mission that he gives to us all, how does that make us love one another? Quite simply, it reminds us that we are in the same boat. The church kind of works like one big canoe and we've all been given a paddle. God has given to every single one of us a responsibility. Ephesians says that he has planned good works beforehand for you to walk in. So it's like he hands you that oar and he wants you to row and he wants us to all row together in the same direction toward our mission of making disciples. But if we lose sight of our shared mission, you're gonna have three people rowing left and four people rowing right and two people rowing backwards and a couple rowing rowing forward and the canoe's gonna get nowhere and most likely you're gonna flip the boat over and just be in a big mess. And I contend, I wholeheartedly believe that the vast majority of church fights and church splits are derived from the fact that people have lost sight of the church's mission. And so y'all, if we're going to love one another like Jesus commands, we have to fight with all we have to keep our eyes focused on the mission, which is to make disciples of all nations. Now, fifth and Finally, the last thing Jesus wants us to see in this text is that friends of Jesus have a shared assurance. So continue reading in verse 16. Jesus says this, I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Why is that? So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, does Jesus really, really mean whatever you ask? As if you know, you, 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 he means that by closing your prayer in Jesus' name, that God has to grant uh, whatever you ask. No, that's not what he means. God's not listening to your prayer for the Panthers to win the Super Bowl and thinking and hoping that you won't say in Jesus' name. And he, he's not like, oh man, they said in Jesus' name, now I have to do it. That's nonsense. That's not, that's not what he's saying here. So, so what are the parameters of this promise? Well, first notice he says this promise applies if you're bearing fruit. That's the way the verse reads. I appointed you to bear fruit and that it would be lasting fruit. Why? So that you can ask the Father whatever you wish. And so this assurance, it is for people who are bearing fruit or in other words, true disciples. True disciples are going to bear fruit. But still though, that does not mean that if you're bearing fruit and you ask God for a Ferrari in Jesus' name, that one will show up on your doorstep. That's not quite what he means there. So second, we have to understand what in Jesus' name really means. When the Bible talks about the name of the Lord, the, the name, it is short, a shorthand way of referring to who God is and what God has done and what he is doing, just his whole person and work. And so to pray in the name of Jesus is simply to pray in such a way that aligns with who Jesus is and with what Jesus done and with what he is doing in the world. And so honestly, you can pray in Jesus' name without literally saying the word in Jesus' name. If your prayer lines up with Jesus' desires and his plans, you're praying in his name. And so by saying that the Father will grant whatever, you, whatever we ask in Jesus' name, the in the name part is actually 
part of the, the parameters or the guidelines as to what types of prayers the Father answers. So everything that you ask the Father that lines up with his plans for saving the world in Jesus, you have 100% assurance that those prayers are, are answered. But, but how, how do we know what to pray for? <laughs> and what about when you pray for good things? Things that by every estimation that you can figure seem to be part of God's good plan in Jesus. What about when God doesn't answer those prayers the way that you would have hoped? Well, listen to Romans chapter 8. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What a promise that this Holy Spirit that Jesus has sent to live in every one of his believers, that he is, when we don't know how to pray as we would like to, as we should be praying, he is praying for us according to God's will. And so now we, we certainly do. We don't need to just be lazy and say, oh, the Spirit will take my prayers and make them make sense. We need to try to make sure that our prayers line up with the Scriptures to pray the promises of Scriptures. But even if we don't know, which Romans 8 says, we don't know how to pray in perfect harmony with God's whole will, we just have to sink our teeth into the promise of Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit of God is interceding for you in such a way that your prayers are made to be in perfect alignment with God's will. And so when you ask the Father for a prayer and you sincerely are striving to pray in Jesus' name, you can be confident that the Holy Spirit, who is one with the Father and who knows the mind of the Father and of the Son, that Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf. And if that seems like a raw deal to you, if you'd rather just have your prayers answered the way you want them answered, just believe me. One day in eternity, when we see how God took our sincere prayers in Jesus' name and turned them and interceded according to his will and how he worked those out, we won't be the least bit let down. We'll be glad that he did that. And so how then does this assurance help us to love one another? Well, if you make it your habit to sincerely pray in Jesus' name, what you're doing is you are making it your habit to lay down your life. When you pray in Jesus' name, what you're saying is that Jesus, this is what I've prayed for, but I'm laying my desires down. Above all, I want your desires to be accomplished. And then if that's your practice, when you step into life with other Christians, that, that's your heart's disposition. That's the disposition of laying down your life. That's just the way you're operating. And that gives us the ability to love one another because more than anything, we want what Jesus wants. So these five things that we share as believers, if we keep our eyes on these and look back through that text at what Jesus says, and we keep our eyes on the things that bind us together as a friend group, as friends of God, that will help us be able to love one another in such a way that we lay down our lives for one another. Because as followers of Jesus, we are called to love one another by laying down our lives for fellow friends of Jesus. 
And we're called to do that every day, every single day, in every single context where you share life with other Christians, whether that's at home or at work or among your life group. This is Jesus' command for our lives is that we love one another. There's so many ways that could look, so many different ways that you're going to have opportunity today and tomorrow and every day of this next week that you're going to have opportunities to forfeit your preferences or maybe even your welfare for someone else to lay down your life from to lay down your life for them. And that can be a scary thing, can it? <laughs> what if people don't return the favor? Well, maybe they won't. But that's not on you. But but just imagine. Just let's close this way. Just imagine what the church would be like. Just imagine what your life group would be like. Just imagine what your workplace would be like or what your family would be like if we were all willing to lay down our lives for one another. Let us pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for this word. God, these, this, this farewell discourse is precious to us. Jesus, because you show us how to live and how to be your disciples and how to make disciples. God, and I pray that this church, that I pray for whoever's watching this, Lord, a believer, followers of Jesus, that they would love one another, that we'd be challenged to lay down our lives for one another. God, I pray for anybody watching this who maybe doesn't know you, Lord, that they would repent of their sins and believe in the gospel. God, that they would become part of this family of God, and that they would experience that love for one another where we lay down our lives for each other, Jesus. That's the work. God, we pray for our church. We pray for our nation. God, we pray that you would send revival. Lord, help us to have a renewed vision of who you are, Jesus, and for your vision of the church to be a movement of disciple-making. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.